Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, Catherine here. Before we launch into this week's show, I just want to tell you two things. First of all, I'm running a couple of online courses in the next few months. Wintering for Writers starts on 30th of July. It's a reflective process designed to help writers who are having their own wintering moments, whether that's feeling ignored, blocked, frustrated or rejected, if you can't seem to get started or if you've stalled. It's something I've been through like a million times and I've got some ideas to help you move on. Check out the link in the show notes for more details. Further ahead, Writing Your True Story starts in September and that's for anyone who wants to write creative non-fiction whether that's fiction writers switching sides, bloggers and journalists who want to write a book, or people who've always dreamed of writing a memoir, this is for you. All links are in the show notes. Secondly, please forgive any sound glitches in today's recording. We're taping down the line under lockdown conditions, i.e. there are far too many people in the house and it isn't perfect, but I hope you'll nevertheless find it as fascinating as I did. Let's get started. I'm Catherine May and welcome to The Wintering Sessions, a podcast where writers talk about the wintering periods in their own lives. Today I'm delighted to introduce you to Huma Qureshi, journalist, novelist and soon-to-be memoirists. Welcome, Huma. 
Thank you. Wow, that's quite a lot. That's that's lots of little labels. <laughs> Although I'm not really a novelist, so no, I'm working on it. I'm working yeah, on it. Right. You're, you're a very successful short story writer, I should say. And Thank you. Congratulations are in order because you've just won the Harper's Bazaar Short Story Prize. Is that right? That's right. That's yes, it's their annual literary prize, and it's one that I have followed for many years sort of holding it at arm's length thinking would I ever ever dare enter something like this and then this year I did and I could not believe it so yeah it's it's been quite an accolade and it's it's already doing some wonderful door opening for me which I I didn't think would ever really be possible so I'm I'm just quite I'm humbled and overwhelmed (laughs) yeah well you're one of the people I think who show the bones of your process and show the bones of like the um I don't know what's the way to say it like the mental process you go through to achieve those bits of writing success like they always feel very few and far between when you're on the receiving end of them don't they yes yes they do and yeah I think I I do talk about it because I like well by talk about it I mean I reference it on in places like my Instagram and I will I will say what I'm working on and I will Mm. say what sort of position I'm in or what stage I'm in because I feel that we don't talk about that enough really like as writers we talk about the finished product and we announce our book deals with much joy but we never really give away what it took to get there um and I find that um I find that curious like on the one hand I wonder if maybe I'm too open about it <laughs> on the other hand I wish I had someone who showed me the way if that makes sense yeah, because I'd maybe. um I, I last year I wrote this piece for a magazine called Miss Lexia which is an amazing mm. uh writing magazine for women writers and I wrote this piece about the um the emotional journey of being on submission so when your manuscript has been sent out by your agents to various publishers or even if you're on submission looking for your first literary agent um and how again it's one of those processes which is very secretive and I think in publishing all these recent discussions about publishing paid me and all Mm. of that I'm just hoping that it lifts a curtain at along the way to make the whole process more transparent because we don't we don't talk about um the protocol that's involved is just it's yeah. you know and and I say that as someone who's worked in the media full time in a national newsroom and arguably had what people might consider to be connections but I had no idea of the protocol that's involved in approaching Mm. a literary agent and what you do and don't say and how long that email should be and don't say this but do say that and they can turn off if you just accidentally put the full stop in the wrong place and it's like (laughs) it's it's insane (laughs) and so yeah I've become I've become open about prosa because I, I kind of think that's what I would have wanted. And if that's something that that kind of curtain and the cloaks and daggers of, of being of writing and being published, I think I think it's time that we all sort of opened up a little bit about our oh, journeys. I, because I so, so agree. And I, yeah. think, um, I think it's an, an arcane system from the outside. And like, funny enough, I've been putting together some courses lately about writing and I spent the longest time really reflecting on what courses I wanted to offer because 
it felt to me unethical to paywall anything that showed people how to basically access the publishing industry and, and yeah like, when we're talking about minority groups getting into publishing and you know like it I, that's not just about ethnicity I mean like I'm you know I'm from a working class yes. background there's no yeah. one in my family that could ever have said to me oh this is how you do it you know yeah um I just think that we don't realize how opaque that is from yes. the outside and yeah I, I've certainly found it very opaque throughout my career definitely yeah absolutely and I think one thing that has been startling to me in the process so I um I have also been going through the process of, of finding a new um literary agent as you'll know because we talked about that yeah. offline as well um and that was because my fiction is moving into as kind of well, I'm I'm exploring literary fiction. I feel very much that that's where my my heart and my voice is, and and so for various reasons, I wanted to move from one agent who I'd had for a very long time and was very supportive, but it felt like the time had come mm. to to take that genre elsewhere. Um, and on the one hand, all my sort of working life as a journalist, even though my background and my name and my you know my cultural her- heritage and all of that um, would mark me out as perhaps different or other or minority in in an mm. overwhelmingly white industry. In the day-to-day workplace, I fit in. Um, I fit in because you don't know to look at me and I fit in because I um, have um, what I'm told what my husband makes fun of as my very posh accent and so on and so <laughs> forth which I um, and what struck me in the literary process was uh, uh, in the submission process for agents was and also when my my book's been on submission was just knowing that they saw my name first mm. and knowing what would come with that and there was a part of me that found that really difficult because when you would get feedback I knew that no matter if it was unconsciously done, there would be a degree of, oh, Mm. when they'd see a name that's... And and the idea that they're already kind of mentally putting you in... They're already putting me in a a box. Yes, yeah. And and how Muslim is she? Um, Mm. I could see that in some of the sort of the, the feedback and the responses. And even though it wouldn't be necessarily, again, it wouldn't be transparent, but you could pick up on things and I yeah. think you, you learn to pick up on things so anyway yes I am You're I, I, into things, yeah. yeah and I guess I share because on the one hand I think of myself as fairly introspective and quite private mm. um but on the other hand there are certain things that I feel comfortable talking about this is actually a really nice segue into what we we're going to talk about today because your wintering period came in your third pregnancy very important yes. you got to the third I gave up off the first um, <laughs> But it's, this is all related, isn't it, to having that ambition to write and yes. that ambition to, to achieve something and feeling blocked from it. Yes, that's right. So I um, I have three little, wonderful little bundles um, right now. Um, they are age six, five, and my youngest is nearly three. He'll be three in August. And so I had the older two were in quite quick succession. There's only about mm. 20 months between them. Um, and when I fell pregnant for the third time, I was both overjoyed and, you know, we wanted we wanted yeah. to, to grow our family. But I was also itching to get started mm. in other ways. And I had 
a naive perhaps idea that I would carry on writing or because I'd been pregnant twice before I would just this time I'd know what I was doing and I would keep writing that was my my plan um and I kind of thought this because in between because with my first pregnancy I wrote my first book which was called In Spite of Oceans and I'd managed that. So I signed the book deal and my first book deal when I was about eight weeks pregnant um, and somehow managed to write that first book um, through a combination of having support from my husband who took time off work. Um, you know, he would hold a newborn baby and bring him to me for breastfeeds whilst I would write this book. But I'd written half of it before he was born. So, and it was a very different kind of book. It was non-fiction. It was creative non-fiction, and it was very planned. So, in some ways, it was very achievable. Um, and when my second was born, I'd got back into journalism. I was freelancing a bit more. I was writing pieces for Guardian Books, and I was really enjoying it. So, I kind of felt like I was getting back, not necessarily all the way back, but I was doing more journalism then and I felt like I can make this work. Mm. Um, and so when my third pregnancy came around, I had, I think I convinced myself that I could do it because I could keep on writing and be pregnant and look after two toddlers essentially, um, because I thought I'd done it before. And everyone had told me how much easier it was. And, and you get that after, you know, after a couple of pregnancies, I imagine you, you do feel quite capable mm. in some ways. But in other ways, my body had other plans. Um, I had severe um, pregnancy sickness um, that hit me like a bus. And it knocked me in ways that were both physical, but also very emotional. Mm. Um, there were... It was incredibly hard and when I look back at that period I don't remember a huge amount but I remember I remember sort of creeping up the stairs on hands and knees because I was so worn out and I remember weeping because it. I it physically so be that sick and looking after two tiny children it was incredibly hard and again I'm very lucky that my husband is in a flexible enough um you know he's his own boss mm. so he was able to be very hands-on but we don't have family that live nearby um and at the time also I was very also very lucky because I had um a wonderful babysitter who I think babysitter's are brilliant for writers um although I don't have one anymore and I haven't had one for a while so. um but as she she would like literally come home at she would come and help with the sort of bedtime and bath time when I would be at my lowest point wow. because it was very physical like I physically had little strength in me and and uh, I don't under you know I think I think there's a lot that's misunderstood about severe yeah. uh, pregnancy sickness. Yeah. Um, and I think some, I think just some hospital trusts and some boroughs treat it better than others and so on. And I think so people just get, yeah. you just fall out the net. And, um, you know, if I had a pound for every time someone medical told me to take ginger, I would, <laughs> I would honestly be living my best life right now. <laughs> Um, but yes, it was a very dark period of um, weakness. 
And it, that's what it was. It was physically I was weak mm. because I was exhausted and depleted and my energy levels were, were depleted. And I used to I used to manage to get out and collect one child from nursery. I think only one of them was in nursery then. But I used to spend a lot of time just curled up in a ball, feeling very weak and feeling very worried and sad that if anything happened to this pregnancy that we so wanted, I remember turning to my husband in tears to say, I don't know if I can do this again. I don't know if anything happens. I don't know if I can do this again. I don't know if I can take it. And I remember standing outside in the dark, like trying to take in fresh air to stop being sick for the 15th time that day. And just it would just be so overwhelming because I couldn't, it was like the very physical process. I don't want to gross anyone out who's listening to it, but the physical <laughs> process of throwing up is is not pleasant. Yeah. And it would happen so often that it would physically hurt, everything would hurt. And then it would just break me because I felt like my body could cope and I felt all sorts of things. I felt frustrated I felt a very um irrational anger at my body for failing me for not knowing how to do what it had already done before now I'd had I'd experienced I guess I'd experienced a more than normal uh pregnancy sickness with the other two Mm. in that it lasted for a long period of time but it was very slow and long and then it kind of lifted around kind of 20 weeks of pregnancy or something but the third time around it was intense and heavy and it lasted the whole way through Mm. um and I'd never really believed that before that you could be sick for every single day for nine months multiple times a day but when you put it like that and you think of what it feels like yeah, when you're just if it once. happens just once and <laughs> yeah. it feels really gross and nasty and you brush your teeth and you're like, ugh. But you generally feel better afterwards. Mm. But to have that happen um, around 10 times a day and not feel better afterwards, it each time just chipped away at me. And I, it hit me because it kind of, it just started and then it didn't stop. And it started at a time where in my head, I'd convinced myself this was going to be my flourishing pregnancy. This was going to be <laughs> the time where I would be... Glowing. Yeah, and I would flourish as a writer because I had ideas and I felt itching to get them down. And so I used to um, I used to read in between. I remember reading in our bedroom, so there's so something topsy-turvy in our house is that my our bedroom is downstairs and so that's always made it feel a bit like a sanctuary because everybody else is upstairs right. and so when I had the childcare help and when my husband um would always step in and basically give me just this time to be downstairs next to a bathroom and lying in bed because there was nothing else I could do I would be there was a part of me that kept pulling me towards but your idea because I had this idea I had an idea for a novel and I in those moments of I don't want to say brightness but I say in between those those moments of physical physically being drained I would have this um 
of the voice in my head that would remind me, remember, you said you were going to do something this time around. And I think I was very scared that if I didn't make anything of myself now, it would be too late because then I'd be a mum of three and then what? And I was really hard on myself. It was really, really harsh on myself. I couldn't see that I just needed to give myself a break. So I had all of this going on in my head and I kept trying to, it was almost like I was punishing myself by forcing myself to look at how little progress I'd made. Oh, I don't know if that makes sense. That internal voice that just keeps yeah. kind of haunting you and telling you all the stuff that you haven't done. Yeah, exactly. No, I know it very well. And I was reading a lot of thrillers at the time. And I don't know whether that, again, is a reflection of some sort of state of mind, like what kind of craving some kind of drama. I, I don't know. I don't know. You can read into it. But I had this idea then for and I I think the idea must have been lingering before I was actually pregnant before the sickness had come in because I had already told myself I'm going to write this I'm going to write it now and I'd set myself a deadline and I had spoken to my then agent and we'd and she didn't fully know what was going on um because I didn't want to represent that I suppose naively to admit that stuff I think particularly pregnancy yeah. illness I was quite ill in my pregnancy and I didn't really want people to know because it yeah it seemed like a weakness and every time I told people yes. they'd tell me oh you should do yoga like that was going to solve it like yeah. I can't stand up to do yoga actually yes. <laughs> like, yeah yoga makes but it's really it. distressing and and <laughs> I don't know that I think you're in such an emotional place anyway and I used to hate it when people would say that like the, the whole hormones thing mm. but because I used to feel like that was belittling in some way, but now I can actually recognise that they do mess you around and it's okay to, sometimes you just have to roll with that. And I think my hormones were in such a, a state with everything as well. And I, um, I, so I'd promised myself, I'd set myself this completely unattainable deadline of writing, I don't know, like five chapters in the first I don't know maybe three four months of my pregnancy and of course I failed miserably at that I I couldn't and I didn't and I tried again and again in moments and I can't quite remember what those moments were I don't have any memories of sitting at a desk or being on my own to write so I don't really know when those words appeared Mm. but they did appear and I only managed to write like I don't know, maybe half the first chapter and it wasn't very good and I'd never written anything long length. I didn't know how to structure it. I had no idea of all the kind of forethought that you need before you start some of these things. I just wanted to get something on paper. Yeah. And I just, so the act of the, the idea was irrelevant really and the deadline was also irrelevant because I didn't really have anything to write but it was me just trying to push myself to the max to prove that I could do it and it felt and it sounds completely irrational but it felt like so urgent because I think in my head I'd convinced myself that this was it this was the only chance I was going to get because then I'd have another baby and much as I wanted this other baby and um I was just very aware that it would set me back another couple of years and I was both I was both happy about well I wouldn't say I was overjoyed because I was in a very despairing time and I hesitate to use the word depression because I was never 
I was never really seen by anyone or anything yeah. like that. And it was, um, I think I just, I just wanted very much to know that I still had me beyond the children, which sounds like a very kind of basic uh challenge that mothers face because we all say those things and you you know you and I know from the the motherhood anthology and stuff but I was and I and I I mean that by I I don't want to belittle that feeling but I think it's a feeling that we all have isn't it that you worry Mm. that in some ways this is not enough even though it is enough but there's just voices that pull you in different directions and I think because I'd had my younger two very close together I was very aware that that's what people saw me as. And for some reason, it really bothered me that (laughs) other people saw me as the one with the double buggy who's just had two kids and she didn't go back to work. And I'd find myself wanting, yeah, and I'd find myself wanting to say, well, I wouldn't, it's not, my work isn't like your work. I'm not, um, you know, I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not, I'm not going back to an office because everybody else you know, at the nursery gates or whatever, everyone else would have fairly conventional, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but, you know, they'd have a maternity leave. Yeah, Yeah, and then they'd go back. But writers don't do that. You don't, you don't have a maternity leave and go no. back. You you just Not and so I paid maternity leave. Would yeah, because the state one really isn't very much. Money exactly, exactly. And I, I guess I just sort of struggled with the fact that at some point in that kind of new mum world, which I didn't massively feel a part of, I was very aware that people wouldn't do that. They wouldn't have that conversation that they'd have with each other, which was when you came back to oh, what do you do? And because I think they just saw me as the one who had two babies very quickly and now has a double buggy that doesn't fit anywhere. <laughs> <But> <laughs> you like, can't get through doors um, and all shopkeepers hate and, you. Yeah, and I think even now at the school gates, they're very, it's funny, isn't it? Because you can be friends with people in a kind of friendly hello hi wave kind of way and they don't no one like I you know they don't know that I'm a writer they don't know what I've achieved or because it's not necessarily my nature to go around telling them but also hi I'm a writer yeah and oh and did you know I just won the Harper's Bazaar (laughs) (laughs) but um they, they also don't ask and I find that quite interesting because I think people do make their minds up at you when you've had more than one kid do you think that's about you being that, a muslim woman as well though i think it, it could be it could be um, there about you being more associated with the home and you know i don't know yeah i i do find i mean i mean obviously that's uh, we have very good friends that we've made through that school environment and, and there will be people that do um are aware of you know oh you had a piece in the guardian and so on but there are yeah i do think that there's for all of that, there are also people that are very quick to make assumptions and then are very surprised that that uh, there may be more to you than than the buggies that you push. Yeah, yeah. Um, and luckily, I don't push any buggies anymore because we got rid of the last one very quickly. So, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that, that period for me was... Um, yeah, I, I just associate that period with a very heavy sense of of looking for comfort physically uh anything that would would settle me in a very physical way and curling up and being alone in my bedroom whilst you know the house the rest of the house was all sort of 
moving and awake and mm. and doing what they would normally do around me and I was sort of downstairs in this little lonely place um as much as my you know my husband would he'd just sort of be helpless really because there was little he could do other than hold a bowl which sounds really <laughs> gross but like, that's you know I'd like eat the I spent nine months nibbling at baked potatoes because it was about the only thing that I could stomach. Mm, and I, I lit food. Yeah, and I, I literally, <laughs> literally lifted. And I never believed it when people said this. They were like, oh, as soon as the baby was born, I could eat whatever I wanted. I was like, it doesn't work like that. You're just kidding. <laughs> but within about an hour, wow. I... Uh, the the midwives, I remember they came around and they said, Can, you know, they peeked their head in and, are you all okay? Is baby okay? Can I get you anything now? Um, and they'd often bring toast, because yeah. I remembered that from my first, from the other two pregnancies. They'd bring toast and very sugary tea, obviously to get give you some energy. Toast and jam and that. And I, that, that toast was something I could just not eat. And, <laughs> and they brought it. And I ate it and I could taste it. I could taste the jam. And I thought, this is, this is, this is it. This is the change that everyone talks about. My husband, who was obviously very tired, was asleep when this was going on. And I woke him up to say, like, it's gone. It's actually gone. And it's, it's really odd because it both felt, you know, it was this physical and very emotional period of self-punishment in a way that I'd I'd done to myself like testing myself yeah and yet we took my little one home and and it was as if it never happened it was as if the those hormones whatever it was that had done that to me and put me in such a Mm. dark place I remember remember we came home at a very easy touch wood had a very easy delivery the third time around and we came home, we would have come home the same day, but because of the timing, I think we got to stay overnight and then came home because everything was fine. And it was a beautiful summer's day. It was a day after the August bank holiday and we just sat in the garden and it was lovely. <laughs> and it was honestly the weirdest thing because it was as if it never happened. But of course it did. Uh, but, and I think, you know, that then helped me because I think realising that it was all so obviously intertwined with something medical and hormonal and so on and so forth it made it easier for me to draw a line past it yeah um, because yeah. I think if it had been something quite severe like a like a, a pregnancy depression I mm. don't think it would have lifted and it was the strangest feeling because it just but at the same time I haven't forgotten what it felt like so I I still remember distinctly that feeling like I've described of curling up in bed and feeling I don't want to say feeling sorry for myself but I suppose I was Why feeling sorry for myself feel and, sorry for and, and mostly very sad a real sense of sadness and I'd had this trying to write this thing and setting myself a really ridiculous deadline and failing to meet that deadline and then indulging in that failure to have met that deadline by making myself feel worse and telling myself that it was over, that's it, it's over. And yet that feeling very quickly, yeah, it went because once I, I did give myself a break, I stopped 
trying to think about that thriller that I thought I'd write and and I and then I just got back into the swing of life but very quickly I started writing again and it really was the strangest thing and and it wasn't writing for at that point I I started blogging actually and I started sharing the writing process and sort of sharing those feelings and I wrote about what it felt like to sort of start again and then again and again because that's what you do when you when you're a woman and you have babies it is and you're a writer it does feel like that it does feel like you're starting again and again and again and And after a kind of major assault on your identity yeah yeah and I kind of struck because I was very aware in journalism you know, your bylines are everything. And to be out of the game for even just two weeks on holiday, you're out of the game and you almost have to start over again and again and again. And you're constantly pitching. And I I had dropped the ball on all of that in this period of an entire pregnancy, whereas in previous um, pregnancies I had kept on going. I had kept on writing for the papers. I was doing a lot more journalism then. But now in my writing I've come to a point where actually and it used to make me very upset I used to get jealous of friends who had bylines because I'd be like how are they doing this and of course they were doing it because they didn't have all the other things that were going on in my day-to-day life you know they didn't necessarily yeah and and some of them didn't have children some of them didn't have young children or maybe they had older children or maybe they lived with you know, they had parents and families who lived close by who just were there to help mm. them out and all the things that we struggled through. Um, and I'd get very upset and there was a time when I just couldn't even face, like, you know, people would share their pieces online and stuff and I would be the begrudging, jealous friend, be like, that sucks, actually, yeah, because yeah. I don't have any work right now and... And you're doing brilliantly and your career is flourishing and mine isn't. And I was really, like, really, really negative. We we don't talk about envy enough. And I think envy is one of those really dark feelings that comes up in a winter period that, you know, is so hard to cope with, actually. And and we know it's irrational as it comes, but it still rumbles up in the nastiest way, doesn't it? It really does. And I think, though, what's, what's really nice now now that I feel more confident and I've been in a rather productive period of writing this year Uh, well actually since last year I would say things fully kind of turned around Mm. in terms of my productivity and that was dependent on lots of things it was dependent on the kids getting older being in school uh, the younger one being old enough to also need me less join in the rough and tumble with the boys and and me not needing to be the only one that could offer them consolation and stuff like that all these things fell into place and also my mind just just switched on in a way it hadn't it felt very sort of slow (laughs) for a while and but what's been really nice now actually is like this week I've had, um, obviously, the Harper's thing come up, and, and maybe it's riding high on the back of that, but I felt like, actually, you know what? I, I don't think I want to be pitching and fighting for column space to say something that I can link to on my Twitter and then it's forgotten about. I don't 
I don't think I really want that. And I was talking to um, uh, to to an agent actually because I I've been going through that process, like I'd said, and I I was lucky enough to have a couple of offers come through and make a choice and so on. And I was speaking to one of them. Thank you. (laughs) I was speaking to one of them and she said, so what about your kind of journalism side of things and, and all of that? And I said, well, do you know what? If I'm honest, I don't, I don't think I, I think I'm okay with not doing that anymore. I think I just want to write books and I don't know if I can because it would also be nice to have some money but (laughs) it was just a real kind of turning point to allow myself to say do you know what I don't I'm not that I'm not so into that anymore and I think it's just feels sometimes like it's a really um competitive and angry space in which to write and the books world for all its issues and (laughs) opaqueness and it's yeah dare I say it it, it's whiteness and it's all of that it's it yes it has real problems but it also feels like a nicer community like in which to to be a part of because people champion each other in a way that they don't in journalism where it feels very competitive Mm. it feels very kind of you know, people are ready to to pull up an article apart because they don't agree with your opinion and they're not prepared to listen to your opinion and they think, think. I, do you know what I mean? No, Whereas I with books, I there's think, a bit more care. People yeah, are there's a respect for the amount of time that's gone into it, and it's it's not directly yeah. competitive. You know, there's never a writer that you're fighting off for a gig. It's it's not obvious. Yeah, I mean, I think writers kind of compete in their own heads. In you know, sometimes quite yeah self-destructive ways but it it is self-destructive rather than destructive to the other person really I think for sort of writers from underrepresented backgrounds I think sometimes and both I by that I mean both in terms of of class as Mm. well as as color I think there is a feeling that perhaps somewhere along the line there is a judgment made that your story's already been told but between the writers themselves I don't get the sense that writers combat each other in the same way that you see these things explode on twitter between between journalists and it just seems like such a lot of anger and aggression that i don't (laughs) want to be involved in so much um and and it's really nice to connect with with writers who yeah who are chipping away at their craft and they're getting on with it sometimes quietly other times sharing the process and I, that feels a lot steadier and a lot more mm. you're in it together. So it strikes me that as you're telling your story, that actually if you look at it in the fullness of time, what you're saying is that you made a very slow and painful transition away from a life that wasn't, wasn't suiting you and that was actually quite hard and towards a new way of being a writer that maybe abandoned some of those kind of more difficult journalistic um, conventions. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I mean, I remember, and this is going to sound nuts, actually, I remember being about 22, I think, 22 or 23. I, I forget how old I was, but um, my, my father had just died. And um, and if that sounds weird, I do just forget things like time. I have to count it on my fingers because I, that period, again, is such a blur. But I had an interview, I think it must have been not long after he'd passed away, and it was um, 
and this is in my memoir, this is in how we met. Um, and I got offered a job um, and I was very, <laughs> got offered, my first job was at On The Observer and um, I was very quiet and very shy <laughs> in the interview. And the guy interviewing me was very lovely and he's a lovely, lovely gentleman. He's been a real, um, he's just been very, very guiding for me <laughs> in my career. And anyway, he was there and he was very lovely and I was very aware that in this group interview there was a lot of loud Oxbridge boys um who were very vocal about their opinions on politics and things like that and I'd like you know I literally spent a year in a hospital next to my dad's bedside and emerged into the light like I just want to write (laughs) and I remember him saying to me very gently you know it's it's how do you feel about talking to other people you know like picking up the phone and and doing interviews you know off the hook and things like that and I I was very shy and I think my answer was sort of like well I'm I'm not very good on the phone (laughs) and he said well part of being a journalist is talking to people and he said it in such a nice way though like, I can't convey enough how how warm he was actually about it because he obviously saw something in me because he gave me the job over the other Oxbridge boys which was quite nice but um yeah, that always stuck with me that he was very gentle and very careful like she obviously needs a little bit of nurturing but maybe she's got something to her and decided to give me the starter position but um, it, That's so it, lovely. I love. I love it when you come across those people that really know how to nurture talent. Rather than, oh well, he was know. really sweet, and we've stayed in touch over the years. But it's so funny because to me, it's like that warning was something maybe I should have listened to. That <laughs> when you are a journalist, you do need to talk to people, and you do need, to, and you do need to pick up the phone. And and I used to go when we moved to these new fancy Guardian offices in Kings Cross, and they had these. Um, pods where you could go in for if you needed like soundproofed recording or whatever it was um and I used to go in there just to make phone calls for case studies and stuff because I couldn't stand the thought of of people hearing me on the phone because I was so (laughs) unsure of myself I was just really unsteady and unsure of myself I think and it was all a learning process and eventually you know it's obviously I can talk for hours on a podcast I'm absolutely fine with talking yeah, to people no now talking. but it's <laughs> just really funny to me that that first piece of advice that I ever received on my career as a journalist was like maybe I should have listened to that but then again you know what maybe I needed that maybe I needed to be pulled out of that shell and I think I probably did and I don't regret any of that amazing experience of just being thrown in at the deep end yeah, um yeah. because I think it all helped me get to where I am now and I think it is it feels really weird to be able to look back now and specifically in this week with you know so much happening with both the competition and people being in touch and you know agents being in touch and then finding signing with a new agent and all of those amazing things happening and in the space of a, a couple of weeks and, and doors suddenly opening and people wanting to talk to me and, and people being interested in how we met when previously they haven't been interested to want to know more. And all these things are happening and it just feels like things, it just feels like a really nice position. I, I'm very aware of 
of the luck that's been played in that, but also to be able to say, yeah, I worked for that. I've worked for this. And maybe this is, maybe this is my time. Maybe I have come out of that wintering of, of young children and that period of kind of trying to find your identity and all the things that you face as a new mum the first time around doesn't mean that you don't face it the second time or the third time you still go through that emotional conflict and and it just feels really yeah I feel much more steady on my feet now and I think that's a good sign that that wintering (laughs) is long behind me that is just such a perfect (laughs) thank you so much it's been amazing to talk to you and thank um, you anyone listening who wants to look you up I'll put all of your social links and links to your books in the show notes thank you so much Catherine thank you And that's about all for today. Thank you so much to Huma Qureshi for her fantastic words of wisdom about how to survive a very nasty wintering period. I'll be back next week with another writer who's wintered. But in the meantime, please press like, subscribe, give it some stars, whatever your app allows it to do, and tell all your friends. See you next time. Bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.